our differences worldwide would vanish if we were facing an alien threat from outside this world. And yet, I ask you, is not an alien force already among us? Exopolitics, paranormal phenomena, and deep analysis of current world events from somewhere in the desert, between Area 51 and Roswell, blasting across the planet, the Manticore Network proudly presents Veritas, because the truth will set you free. Headline edition, July 8, 1947. The Army Air Force has announced that a flying disc has been found and is now in the possession of the Army. I think it's time to open the books on the question of government investigations of UFOs. Uh, we ought to do it really because it's right. We ought to do it because the American people, quite frankly, can handle the truth. And we ought to do it because it's the law. Be skeptical. Do be as skeptical as you want, but by all, don't close your mind. Greetings to everyone around the world and a warm welcome to another edition of the Veritas Show, where you listen not because you want to believe, but because you want to know. I'm your host, Mel Fabregas, and I sincerely thank you for tuning in. I also want to welcome all the new listeners. If this is your first time, make yourself at home, and I'm glad you joined us. Remember, more than a show, this is a movement set on informing the world teaching and finding out everything about the hidden knowledge being kept secret from humanity. If you need to get in touch with me, with comments or questions for me or our future guests, send an email to mel, that's M-E-L, at veritasshow.com. Tonight we have a full show and our special guest is Dr. Michael Sala. Among many interesting topics, he has a new book out, Exposing U.S. Government Policies on Extraterrestrial Life, the challenge of exopolitics. Also, on our first segment, Angela Joyner joins us. Angela broke the Stephen Veal UFO story early last year and was dismissed by her own newspaper for having reported it. Today's interviews took most of our allotted time, actually more than usual. But as you know, so far we don't have any limitations. Instead, any important news I will include on our blog. Speaking of our blog, for the past few weeks, I've received lots of advice from the UFO blogger community and would like to publicly thank all of them for their efforts toward this program and for the great work informing the world on the latest news. Let me start by thanking the blogger for 22050 Hertz or 22050 Hertz from Canada, which by the way, I had to ask her if that was some kind of radio frequency. And indeed, the clever name is based on the radio frequency used by extraterrestrials to communicate with us on the movie Contact. Very clever. 
she also submitted the very first Veritas contest video. The other contributor is UFO Blogger from Britain, who provided some informational widgets a few weeks ago and opened a Twitter account for us. And lastly, the Webby team from Webby UFO Believers Blog, who also submitted the newest Veritas video contest video. Another nice one, I must add. You can view this and the other videos on the video section of the website. In addition, they provided the two small slideshows you now see on our homepage. All of them are taking this show very seriously, and your assistance and involvement are very appreciated. Thanks again. That said, let me share with you the new technologies that we have implemented so we can make this show a true interactive experience, given the limited resources we have. In one week, we have added the following features. Number one, a Facebook page for the show. Just search for Veritas Show on Facebook. Even Wheatley Streber signed up yesterday, even before we announced it. I hope you join it so we can all keep in touch. Number two, a chat roll. A few weeks ago, I had no idea what a chat roll was. Now the Veritas community has a place to stop by and chat 24-7. Furthermore, soon we will have chats with some of our guests. How about if you sign on to our Facebook group and I will have a chat with all of you. To find out when the chat will be, I'm only going to tell you it's going to be next week. For the rest, you have to join the Veritas Show group on Facebook. Number three, Twitter, to spread the word through our blog. Number four, although we had what I considered a blog, it was not advanced enough. So I was compelled to make it a true blog. And if you have visited, you can now see the difference. Now, instead of focusing on news on the show, we'll allot more time to our guests, and you can still follow the news on the blog. Number five, the Veritas video contest to spread the word. The contest ends on March 31st, and I will add a poll system and let you decide which ones are the winners. Number six, this one is not available yet, but it will soon. A forum. That way, we can create a true community of truth seekers, similar to the forum over at Project Avalon. Next week, on Friday the 13th of February, our special guest is John Lear, who lives on the moon. If you have heard John Lear speak before, you know this will be a great show. And on Friday, February the 20th, Sergeant Clifford Stone, UFO Crash Retrievals and Technology. If you enjoyed his appearance on Coast to Coast AM this week, expect much more. Remember, we're unscripted, uncensored, and uncut. Let's take a quick break, and when we return, Angela Joyner will be with us directly from Stephenville, Texas. You may remember her as the reporter who broke the Stephenville Lights UFO story. Don't go anywhere.
Angela Joyner, formerly a staff writer of the Stephenville Empire Tribune. Angela is known internationally for breaking the UFO sightings in Stephenville, Texas, in January of 2008. Angela appeared on Larry King Live and continues to do many interviews across the nation. With us, directly from Stephenville, Texas, Angela Joyner. Hello, Angela, and thanks for joining us on The Veritas Show. How are you? Oh, I'm doing well, and thank you for having me on. Before I ask you for the latest Stephenville news, for those in the audience around the world who may not know who you are, just a few. Can you give us a quick recount of how it all started back in 2008? Yes. Um, in January 2008, I was contacted by Steve Allen, a local pilot, and um, he had he explained to me he was with three other people and had seen something that he he didn't know what it was. And uh, from there, I wrote the first story printed on uh, January the 10th, and uh, subsequently um, it went national and then international with just within a few days. So it became quite a quite a large story for this mass sighting we had in Stephenville. You said, and I quote, I don't want to say anything bad about the newspaper, and that's the Empire Tribune. I don't want to say anything bad about the newspaper. They're just interested. They're just not interested anymore. But it was a record sale month in the history of the Empire Tribune for January of 2008. Unquote. Not interested anymore when they had a record sale month sounds a bit conflicting to my business logic. What do you believe was a real reason that they dismissed you and they said they were it was an embarrassing story? Well, I think that the uh, publisher and editor um, got some mixed reviews from maybe uh, people with the city council or at the Chamber of Commerce. Um, they did, you know, things like we don't want to be the next Roswell and, and things like that. Um, I had given my notice because I had been asked to ignore the witnesses and not to speak with them anymore, and I didn't feel that I could do that, so I had given my notice, and then a week into my notice, they asked me to leave. So it was, a, it was not a comfortable place for me to be. How can you be a true journalist when you ignore your credible witnesses? Well, they felt that it was time to move on, and I just didn't feel like I could abandon those people because they had been thrust into the limelight just like I was. Um, we had news trucks everywhere, uh, lots of uh, folks still interested, and I was still the media contact, and I was still the witness contact, so I didn't really have a way to honor their wishes, even though I tried. I tried to uh, uh, put all of that attention to my after-hours time, and uh, it just didn't work out. So they let you go, but I heard they're now covering the story themselves. That's insincerity, duplicity, double standard, hypocrisy, or perhaps you really asked the right questions to the right people. Um, they did do a story back in October we had a, uh, a mass sighting again, and they they did do a story. But um, just a few days later, the reporter that did that story uh, put a piece on their opinion page that said she was forced to do the story and wasn't uh, 
she was afraid it would ruin her fledgling career. So she wasn't, uh, to me that said, you know, there's a little bit of bias going on right there already. So I'm not sure um, how how they've handled that since, but I know they were getting a lot of phone calls and they felt pressured to do another story is, is my take on it. Someone who worked in Washington wrote a letter to the newspaper last year. And I quote, the media can be pressured to drop sensitive stories concerning UFOs, extraterrestrial life and fire employees who continue to pursue them. All it takes is a phone call from someone with a high national security clearance to the head of the media company who relays instructions down to the hierarchy. This is typically done secretly behind the scenes, so no one is left guessing as to what really happened. If this happened to the Empire Tribune, then the public deserves to know the truth, unquote. To when are inter- have you come to your own conclusions as to why they terminated you and why they harassed a credible witness like Ricky Sorrells? Um, okay, now, who, who do you believe uh, was doing the harassing of Ricky Sorrells? Well, that's the that's question? the question. Uh, basically, to uh, the have you come to your own conclusion as to why they terminated you and why they harassed a credible witness stated by this person who wrote to the newspaper? Apparently, some of your witnesses were being told to stop talking. Okay, Ricky Sorrells was told to stop talking, but we don't know um, exactly. You know, anybody can call you up and say, I'm with the Air Force, I'm Captain so-and-so. We didn't right. really have a way to to verify that, but um, somebody did call him and identify themselves as military, and um, Ricky had had a lot of trouble with black helicopters flying really low over his property. Um, he has a few head of cattle and uh, scaring his cattle. You know, you don't want your cattle run through fences. Sure. And um, they had a heated discussion on the telephone, and the man says, if you stop talking, you know, then we'll stop flying. And so Ricky did stop talking, and the helicopters uh, ceased. So he didn't talk again until uh, July the 11th, when we did the Larry King live show to uh, release the radar report. And we were a little concerned that all that might start up again, but it, but it didn't. Um, Yeah, he had some problems like that. He had a man come on his property in the middle of the night that he didn't know who he was. Um, He had uh, several things like that go on. Um, now, I believe it's because Ricky had so much detail um, about what he saw. He's the only witness in our area that had a daytime sighting. Now, how are you now, and where are you now employed? I'm a free, freelance writer. I um, work uh, from home and uh, mostly as a correspondent for the Abilene Reporter News. Are you working on a book on the events that... Uh had so much impact in your life? Well, you know, so many people ask me that about a book. And um, I had thought early on I would do a book, and then when I really got down to it, I thought, uh, I don't know if this would uh, be a very interesting book. So I kind of dropped it. And then here lately I have sort of gotten an angle that I think I might 
try to work on one. Uh, we'll just have to see how that goes. You probably met uh, Dr. Linkit Tai on the Phoenix Lights. She also wrote a book. Yes, and she just called me yesterday. That's funny you should mention her. She's a nice lady. Yes, she certainly is. I met her uh, last year. Have there been any more threats or any additional impact on your journalistic career? Um, no, I don't think so. Um, you know, I, I'm i in a small town, so it's not like I can just, uh, you know, go to another newspaper and, and pick up where where I left off. So um, uh, it's uh, it's been an interesting year. Um, I'm not bitter about any of it. Um, it's been a good experience for me. I have met so many intelligent, smart, wonderful people in this field that otherwise I would have not, you know, I would have never known them. And, um, I, you know, I feel like it's just onwards and upwards and, and we'll just see where it leads me. Well, as they say, one door closes and many others open. Right. And um, uh, I have gotten gotten to do some traveling and uh, do some speaking, and uh, and that has been uh, really eye opening. Before this happened, Mel, I was not interested in UFOs at all. Um, if I had seen something on television, or you know, picked up a magazine that might have something in it, I'd think, well, that's interesting, and forget it. I didn't. Uh, didn't concentrate on anything uh, like this. And um, I would say once the UFO bug bit me, it got a big chunk. (laughs) 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 And and, uh, I read daily about it, and I've tried to learn the history, you know, the historical sightings, um, uh, tried to learn about those. I depend on um, a lot of people to kind of guide me through those. Grant Cameron helps me, and so does uh, Frank Warren. Uh, You probably know who they are. Sure. And uh, the UFO community really embraced me and uh, took me under their wing, and I I really appreciate that um, because it was a rough road to hoe there for a while. I didn't really know what I'd gotten into and uh it's 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 been really eye opening before you know i think i'm probably was like other people think well yeah ufo's those people are are a bunch of kooks and then to find out they're very educated uh well researched well spoken people you know it's just not the case at all and then when i started receiving um emails from places like Finland, Lebanon, Japan, all over the world, you know, I really didn't realize how large the UFO community is and and how these sightings do happen all over the world. So it's been a real education for me. And um, somebody, I think it was Grant Cameron, asked me the other day, would you do it again? Well, yes, I would. I miss my job at the newspaper but uh, yes, I would do it again because it has—it's um, just made my world so much larger. What reaction have you received from your fellow journalists, those from your old newspaper, and those nation and worldwide? Well, some some journalists um, 
in the beginning, they said, how did you have the guts to do this story? <laughs> and um, um, I remember a lady from Channel 11 sat across the from my desk at the newspaper and asked me that very question. And I said, well, if you had been the one to answer the phone and talk to Steve Allen, he was so credible and um, well well spoken that um, I said, you might have done it too. And she said, no, I don't think I would have because um, this is sort of a topic that's difficult, difficult to do. Well, um, I started talking to other journalists, and um, uh, later on um, they told me they felt more comfortable reporting about it because I had reported about it without the tongue-in-cheek um, I did more straight news story, no mention of little green men, um, flying saucers and things like that. And um, for some, that that uh, opened uh, the way for, for them to be able to do the same thing. So if that's, you know, all it did, I'm happy about that if they could report about it in a more serious manner. Um I know Dr. Laurie Nadell, author of The Sixth Sense, um, she has a show, and she said she would have never done any kind of UFO stories until she read my stories. So in that respect, that made me feel good that that uh, people uh, felt more, the journalists felt more comfortable after I did those stories to report on them in a straightforward manner. Well, you're awakening people all over the world. How has this affected your family as well? Well, my family, um, my husband is very supportive. Um, he has an interest because he saw something here in the late 70s that he couldn't explain. So he already had an interest, unlike me. So he's been very supportive. Now, I have a teenage daughter, and she's kind of like, uh, oh, yeah, my mom, the the UFO reporter. <laughs> She's not as into it. <laughs> Sounds like my wife. <laughs> well, you know, teenagers are sort of from um, another world anyway, right? Right. So now, do you... Go ahead. My, my brother is uh, very interested, and he supports me. And uh, we go out uh, uh, sky-watching together to try and see things around in our area, my brother and I do. And uh, so mostly my family's supportive. Now, talking about some of the witnesses and some of the people involved in that incident, do you know Robert Powell, the director of research for MUFON? I know Robert quite well. Um, I'm the one that put uh, Glenn Schultz and he together to work on the radar report on Stephenville. Correct. I mean, I wanted to ask you, uh, have you seen those tapes or have you read the analysis? Yes. Um, I worked with them as it was being written, and um, I played a small role in that because sometimes people that are experts forget that the rest of us are not. And I would have to say, whoa, 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 whoa. We're going to have to word this another way so that someone like me can understand, you know, what this means. Right. So um, I think that we worded it so that it's really quite easily read by anyone, not just people in the uh, radar uh, field. 
and um, it's a very uh, enlightening report. It proves that uh, there really was, it's hard evidence that there was something here on January the 8th because it ties eight witnesses in time and direction to an unknown found on that radar. One of the objects was observed or actually vectored toward the Bush compound at Crawford. The object was heading directly towards President Bush's ranch in Crawford, Texas. Surely the Secret Service and State Police, Texas Rangers, had all to be responding, assuming someone was aware. Did someone call out the F-16s to intercept? You know, um, the F-16s, there were 10 F-16s located in that radar data. And it appeared as though none of those F-16s were paying attention to this object flying without a beacon into uh, a no-flight zone. At 8 o'clock, the unknown was 10 miles from the Crawford no-flight zone. And um, in light of 911, the new uh, uh, Office of Homeland Security, uh, that has raised some questions for us. Uh, Robert and I have... Uh, uh, been working on letters, and we sit to Homeland Security and say, you know, how can this happen that this thing was completely ignored, or you know, it wasn't picked up? Either way, why why wasn't something done? And um, we're still waiting uh, for responses on that. What do you think is the significance of the closeness to the compound, and what was the local Texas? take on the aspect or any officials she interviewed or you interviewed well early on i had people asking me um what about crawford um do you think something was going on there so i did um do a little research and i found out that uh president bush was not at crawford the night of january the 8th um he was getting ready to go out of the country but he wasn't there um you know, all of that is just, uh, all we can do is speculate on uh, why there was something uh, actually going towards, you know, you would almost have to assume that it did fly into that uh, no-flight zone since at 8 o'clock it was only 10 miles away. So, um, you know, some people have even thought, well, <laughs> it's something E.T. that landed there and talked to Cheney, but... You know, we'll probably never know, but um, I, I don't, I don't know. There's also a nuclear plant here, not here, but in Glenrose. It's about 40 miles from here that people feel um, something. Uh, there could be an attraction there. There's a wind turbine farm not far, so there's several things that people have speculated about that could be drawing these unknown crafts here. Uh, maybe you have missile batteries, defense, manufacturing plants, air bases, strategic oil reserves, or even homeless security complexes. Well, um, you know, uh, we're not very far from the Brownwood military operating area. We're not very far from the naval uh, air base in Fort Worth. We're just about uh, 65 miles south of there. And um, so we're accustomed to these jets flying over to get to Brownwood military operating uh, airspace. But um, I will say something that does seem uh, 
suspicious to me, and I'm not one to really be an alarmist or jump on conspiracy theories, but beginning in October, we started having a lot of flares dropped. And I've been here most of my life, and I've never seen flares. This is and October of 07, prior to the 08 January no, sightings, no? no? Uh, October of 08. Okay. After that. Okay. See, we started having some sightings pick up in October and November. And then all of a sudden, we have these um, uh, flare drops. I mean, it may be three, eight, three flares, five flares, eight flares, but we've never seen flares like this, and they were just being dropped everywhere all the time, every night. And so um, I understand, you know, okay, I guess they do training with them, but they've never done that before here. And it just seemed that maybe they would set off these flares. Um, it was almost like they knew there was something in the area, and that way they could say, "Oh, it was us." You know, right. we were we were dropping flares that night. And and some of the sightings, you know, honest people make honest mistakes. Once I had talked to them, I knew that they were seeing flares. Um, they had just never seen them before. We don't have them in this area. It looks as if they learned from uh, the Phoenix Lights. First, they were saying there were flares, and they were not, of course, obviously. And a couple of days later, they actually were dropping what were obvious flares. In this and case, so they were why, preparing. Why, why are they doing that? Plus, we have had burn bans on here, and not all of those... Uh, uh, flares function properly. Some of them that they call, uh, I think they call them fizzlers, actually really don't uh, light like they're supposed to. And then once they hit the ground, they can light up. Well, we are in a very dry, grassy area. That could be bad news for us when we're in a burn ban because we have had, you know, hundreds of acres here burn. Sure. So I'm kind of um, unhappy about them um dropping these flares when, you know, it, if if that were to cause a grass fire, it, it, it could be, uh, you know, life-threatening here. Have you tried to get the reaction from notable Texas politicians, say, a Governor, Governor Perry or Congressman Ron Paul? Mm. No, I have not tried to get responses from those people. Um. <laughs> That may be something that I, you know, I work on in the future, but um, no, I, I haven't spoken with any of them. Did you have any military or state agency interview or debrief you? Nobody debriefed me. Now, Steve Hammonds reported the harassment that you went through. What can you uh -huh. tell us more about that? Um, harassment as far as um, the newspaper? Right. Um, you know, I don't really feel that um, it, I was harassed. I just, you know, people don't realize really how small that newspaper is. I was the only full-time reporter. There was a half-time reporter and a sports writer and a paginator and the editor in the newsroom at the time. So what I was when I wasn't able to uh, complete my duties, each day I was supposed to have 
two front page stories and I was lucky to get one done. That meant somebody else had to pick up my slack. And the story was, you know, ongoing. It, it sort of kind of was dying down and then Major Carl Lewis uh, wrote the press release that after he had said there weren't any F-16s in the area, said that they made a mistake and there were 10, it all picked back up again. And I just think um, it was too overwhelming for that small staff. Everybody pitched in for a while, and then they were just re- they were ready to get back to uh, some sort of normalcy, you know, covering school board stories or city council stories and that sort of thing. Kind of, uh, it was overwhelming for them, I think. Did you ever interview Mike Zimmerman? Yes, uh-huh. I interviewed him. Mm-hmm. Let's tell our audience who Mike Zimmerman was. He was a very credible witness. He retired from the Texas Department of Public Safety. He had provided protective detail for five Texas governors, including Governor Briscoe, Clements, White, Richards, and even Bush for a period of 19 years. What can you tell us about him and his sighting? He is a very credible witness. Um, it was early morning. Now, you may have that in front of you. I don't have it in front of me right the date. Do you have the date? I absolutely. 6.05 a.m., January 31st. Um, it was after the mass sightings, and he looked out his window from his home and uh, saw something he had never seen before. Um, since then, some people think it, you know, that what he saw was some sort of uh, uh, rare... Uh, star alignment. I've talked to him since then. He says, no, it wasn't any star that he saw. <laughs> and I um, uh, couldn't explain it. And um, he had talked to Constable uh, Leroy Gayton. Um, and uh, uh, that's how I hooked up with Mike Zimmerman was through the constable. Uh, and to this day, he still says, you know, he doesn't know what that was he saw out his window, but he's, he's certain it wasn't a star or a planet. You're referring to Leroy Gayton, right? Leroy Gayton is the one that um, introduced me to Mike Zimmerman. You know, these policemen, he was working, Mike Zimmerman was working for the Tarleton Police uh, which is the local university. So they all kind of uh, talk, and uh, he knew Leroy had seen something. He was one of the main witnesses. So uh, he told him what he had seen, and, and that's how he said, hey, I want you to talk to Angela Joyner. You can trust her, and you know she'll write it the way you say. And uh, that's how I got hooked up with Mike Zimmerman, was through Constable Gayton. Uh, and he still has a relationship with President Bush. Uh, Mr. Uh, Zimmerman lost a son in Iraq a couple of years ago, and uh, President Bush called him to offer condolences. Sorry to hear. Angela, your report on the eyewitness account of the three unnamed local police officers who also witnessed the event and actually saw a craft not merely lights, in your own words... I quote, Officer X is one of more is one more witness in an intriguing story not known around the world as the Stephen Bill Lights. Uh, 
Some are saying the Stephenville event is the most significant UFO sighting since the Phoenix Lights more than a decade ago. What is the difference in your opinion? Um, the difference, I think, is that we have the radar uh, data to back up these witnesses. Um, it's hard evidence. Um, these uh, police officers actually saw the craft. They didn't see just light. Just, they didn't see just lights, right. Right. And uh, one of them drove up underneath it and could even tell it had a texture to it. It was like a heavy uh, um, tarp-like texture. And um, it was very uh, uh, low to the ground. This thing was, uh, you know, it, it was, uh, he, they even did a sketch, a computer sketch. Uh, it had the color of this kind of a drab green color, uh, lights on the top, lights on the bottom um, that, uh, that uh, blinked. And then uh, they described how this thing pivoted up on its end. Um, they had a lot of detail. Um, it's still my goal to maybe help Officer X someday be feel comfortable enough to uh, come forward with his name. Um, he's afraid that it would affect his job or it could affect his job, and uh, that's why he doesn't use his name. That was my next question. Have these three men also faced job threats or intimidation? Well, I don't think they have because most don't know who they are. But um, Officer X pointed out to me that because he has called the court to testify in cases he's involved with, that a defense lawyer would try to discredit him by going, oh, yeah, and weren't you the officer that saw the UFO on January the 8th and make him look bad to a jury? And he said if he could not um, testify at court, then, um, you know, he, his, uh, his job um, as in that respect would, be, would become useless. Sure. So... I can understand that, and I could see how a defense lawyer would try those tactics. Apparently nothing was recorded on their police cameras or cell phones. They say they, could, they couldn't reposition their car cams, but they used their radar guns to lock on? Weren't they Officer concerned? Did. Yes, Officer X used his radar gun and clocked the thing going at 27 miles per hour, which... That's one of the things he, that caught his attention because this thing was kind of hovering there and it was so large, it should have fallen from the sky, he thought. Exactly. It's impossible for uh, an airplane to remain in flight at that slow uh, velocity. And that's why he put the radar gun on it just to see, you know, exactly. And it was a good lock, he said. He knew he, it was. He knew it was a good lock. Twenty-seven miles per hour. He was thinking, "What? How does this thing stay up in the air?" Exactly. Were they interviewed by military or homeland security or higher police or state authorities, or just because they're anonymous right now, nothing has happened? Right. That you're aware. Of? I think because they're anonymous, nothing has happened. 
Well, as they say, one door closes and another one opens. Something tells me many doors are opening for you, and you are one of the few remaining true journalists out there, and we need you. Um, One last question. I just saw a video from just a few days ago reported by the local news regarding another sighting in Stephenville. Are you aware of it? Um, In Walnut Springs, we had a young man capture uh, something on video. Is that what you're referring to? That's correct. It's the the orange orb, I believe. Right. Matt Collins is his name, 20 years old, um, and his family uh, witnessed uh, something on the nights of January 29th and January 31st. And I did travel to Walnut Springs and interview him, and I have seen this film and photos, and they are interesting. I'm not, um, I have no idea what it is again, but uh, uh, he has seen uh, these bright lights in the sky with a red center, but the outside of the lights change colors from red to orange to white and um, they're, they're quite large, about 30 degrees off the horizon. Well, Angela, we have come to the end, because I know you have, to, uh, you have uh, some prior commitments. Keep up the good work, and I hope we can definitely stay in touch. Thanks for being with The Veritas Show. Okay. Thank you, Mel. I've enjoyed it. I'm Angela Joyner. I can handle the truth, and I'm ready for disclosure. Bye-bye. And we have to take a break, and when we return, our special guest, Dr. Michael Sala. I'm Mel Fabregas, and you're listening to The Veritas Show. If you want to know what exopolitics is all about and get answers to lots of questions that hardly get asked by any other show, don't go anywhere. Dr. Michael Sala is a pioneer in the development of exopolitics. He is the author of several books that include Exopolitics, Political Implications of the Extraterrestrial Presence, was an assistant professor, researcher, in residence in the School of International Service, American University, from 1996 to 2004. He has a Ph.D. in government from the University of Queensland, Australia. He is also the founder of the Exopolitics Institute, a nonprofit organization that analyzes the political implications of the extraterrestrial presence. 
In addition, he is convener of the June 2006 Hawaii Conference on World Peace and Extraterrestrial Civilizations that will focus on space weapons issues. He has a new book available now, Exposing U.S. Government Policies on Extraterrestrial Life, The Challenge of Exopolitics. Directly from Hawaii, Dr. Michael Sala. Aloha, Dr. Sala, and welcome to The Veritas Show. How are you? I'm very well, Mel. Thanks uh, for having me on the show. I'm looking forward to talking about some of the great developments that are happening out there uh, these days. We are glad to have an exopolitics expert so we can justify the exopolitics motto of the show. You may not know one of my nicknames is Exopolitico. Oh, that's great. As I always do, I like to explore your background so that the portion of our audience that may not know you has a chance to become familiar with you and your work. Very happy to talk about that. How did you choose your journey of enlightenment and education? Well, I was very interested in promoting uh, peaceful conflict resolution uh, for many years, and that was the, the subject of my university training, and I got jobs in the field of uh, teaching students at uh, various universities uh, some of the models and techniques for conflict resolution. And so I was always very interested in how to resolve international conflict. And as I grew more experienced about the field, learned the, uh, the failures, the successes, and, and why uh, conflicts were so intractable, I began to be drawn to looking at, uh, at a deeper level of what's happening in the international arena, and that's where I got very interested in the exopolitical field. How did you choose this path of diplomacy, peace, and transparency? And that's a word I love, transparency. Yes, it's a very important uh, word, especially now in this uh, Obama administration. Maybe later on in the show I can talk a little bit about Obama's importance in promoting transparency. Um, how I got involved in uh, international diplomacy, I, I guess it's uh, something that uh, people kind of develop at a certain point in their life in terms of, you know, what it is they want to do. And I just got very interested in the theories of uh, Mahatma Gandhi, Martin Luther King, the whole notion of nonviolent conflict resolution, that we could resolve our conflicts in a peaceful way. And so uh, that's that's what I studied at uh uh, during my graduate years at uh, university, and and that's what I wanted to do as a, a practici- practitioner in the field of uh, international politics. You have such a colorful history in conflict resolution and a remarkable life impacting serious hotspots around the world. You research ethnic conflicts in Kosovo, East Timor, and Sri Lanka, and work to stop them occurring. Most people know you as an exopolitics expert, but I'd like you to take a moment so that you can let us get to know more of this important aspect of your life. Well, that's right. Uh, It was a very important aspect of my life. I mean, up until the time I got interested in exopolitics, it really was my main interest. Um, and that is, I, as you mentioned, I, I would travel uh, to these different uh, hotspots around the planet, Kosovo, Sri Lanka, uh, East Timor, uh, the former Yugoslavia, and I would do research in the field, try to identify uh, who were the, some of the key players to promote peaceful resolution of conflict. And, you know, there was a certain degree of danger because these were war zones in many cases, and so, um, you know, there were things like uh, having to get through military checkpoints, 
guerrillas operating at night in the areas that I was visiting. So uh, there was a certain degree of, of danger involved, but uh, I was really drawn to it. I mean, the, the prospects of helping people find a peaceful resolution of their conflicts in these hotspots around the world was something that, that really excited me. Um, and uh, it still excites me today. Uh, the only difference now uh, and, and then is that I, I went a deeper level in terms of what it is that causes international conflict. And that's, that's why the exopolitical is really a development on my earlier work. I'm still trying to promote international, com uh, trying to resolve international conflict, but now I understand that unless we get to the deeper sources of international conflict, we're not ever going to be able to resolve them because I firmly believe now that international conflict is manufactured as a cover for a lot of these processes that are associated with the extraterrestrial cover-up. Military-industrial complex sounds what uh, something that uh, former President Eisenhower said before he left. Well, it is a, a definite worry in terms of the, the power of the military-industrial complex, how it has huge sums of money, uh, both money that is taken from the appropriations of, uh, of, of Congress, uh, the Treasury appropriations, and also from a black budget. Uh, the the military-industrial complex uh, is, is a huge uh, institution or a huge set of actors that really does have its own agenda, and it really is a force to be reckoned with. And I think that that was something Eisenhower recognized because he himself, as president, I believe, realized uh, that he couldn't control the military-industrial complex. And I think in the, in the 40 years and more since Eisenhower's farewell address, the, the power of the military-industrial complex has, has grown. And, uh, and so we really have to deal with uh, a very big problem here. And let's not forget that on his draft, he actually had written military industrial congressional complex, but his advisors told him not to say it. Right, yes. I've heard a variation on that, that it was a military industrial educational complex. But yes, the, the same principle, that, that, that there was a kind of um, a, a more cultural uh, conditional aspect, conditioning aspect in that whole military industrial uh, affair. How did you get linked to the United Nations efforts for peace in East Timor and elsewhere and promoting the Ambassador for Peace program? We could use your help somewhere in the Middle East right about now. Well, thankfully, uh, the Middle East was not a place that I, I got too involved in because it, it really is uh, a very, very difficult conflict to, to resolve. Uh, East Timor, thankfully, was uh, it was a little more of a logical choice for me. Uh, I'm a native Australian, or at least in so far as I was born and raised there, and East Timor is a neighbour of Australia. Right. Um, and so, and I was at the time doing my, or just finishing my PhD at the University of Queensland, and, and Queensland is is the the state uh, that that's very close to uh, East Timor, actually the closest state to East Timor and the Australian continent, if you don't count Northern Territory, which is really a, which is not a state yet. Um, and so it was very logical for me to look into what was happening at East Timor, given my background, uh, my, my uh, doctoral work was in promoting nonviolent conflict resolution. And so there was an aspect of the East Timor conflict which was nonviolent. And so I traveled over there to find out uh, what they were doing to nonviolent resolve their, their conflict. And that's when I got very interested in, in the East Timor 
process. And of course, uh, East Timor at the time was uh, an international problem insofar as Portugal made it an international issue at the United Nations because Portugal was still recognised as the former colonial power. Right. right even though East Timor had been incorporated forcibly into Indonesia. And so that, that meant that the UN was part of a kind of tripartite process between uh, uh, Portugal and Indonesia, and that the, the UN was kind of like uh, the third party in that process trying to promote a resolution. And so that's how I got involved in the UN peacemaking uh, perspective. Do you feel that the UN will play a vital role in this closure and transparency? I think the UN is going to play a vital role. Uh, the UN, as, as best as I can determine based on my sources and the research I've done, did hold a series of secret meetings uh, beginning in February of last year to deal with the, U uh, to deal with the UFO issue. Uh, those discussions were uh, secret. Uh, diplomats uh, were warned uh, and have been threatened, as, as far as I can tell, not to disclose what they uh, were discussing, uh, but nevertheless, I've, I've learned that they did reach a, a policy agreement on a new era of openness beginning in 2009. And Mel, I mean, that is exactly where we're in at the moment. We are seeing greater openness uh, right around the world when it comes to the UFO issue. And so to me, this is a, a sign that the UN did in fact have these talks and that a new international policy of openness on UFOs and extraterrestrial life is underway. Is it true, I heard rumors through, I believe it was Stephen Bassett or someone else, that during that meeting, oil-producing countries opposed to it? Uh, there's, there's always always been this uh, opposition by, by countries, uh, well, well, corporations that are opposed to uh, the distribution of, of new energy technologies. Uh, as far as oil-producing countries, uh, we're talking probably uh, countries like Saudi Arabia. Yes, uh, the, the countries in the Middle East were opposed to disclosure. Now, whether that was just because of the oil factor or whether it was because of a genuine kind of religious factor. Religious. Which, um, not certain, but yes, Saudi Arabia and other countries uh, in the Middle East or the Islamic world were reported to be opposed to moving forward on this disclosure uh, process. And I have a question about what you just mentioned following this one. Is the UN or a world government approach essential in uniting the world to push for disclosure, full disclosure, and sharing of technology and revelations? Um, I don't think that it's as important as it, it once was. I think now what we truly have is a global community united through the internet. You know, I, I think that the internet is, um, is a social network that unites people across the planet on a whole variety of issues, and the ET UFO issue is one of those. And, and I think that that is where most of the disclosure is happening. I mean, it's not being covered in the mainstream media. The mainstream media kind of, by and large, either ignores it or, or just kind of gives it very scant uh, coverage. But it's really on the Internet uh, that people can get um, access to the latest information. For example, a very good uh, case in point is that your, your, your Radio Veritas show. I mean, people can tune in, listen to it on the Internet, and that's how they get informed. They can listen to this, in, uh, listen to this interview and they can uh, form their own opinions about what's happening. And that's happening with a lot of... 
people, a lot of radio programs, uh, a lot of journalism is being conducted increasingly online. So I think the internet is where disclosure is happening. Um, but the UN, nevertheless, has an important role to play because it's, a, it's an important international body and it will really help uh, the mainstream media and other countries take all this seriously. But the, uh, but the internet is, is still way ahead in, in terms of the disclosure process. I consider the internet the Achilles heel of the uh, intelligence community uh, because this is the way disclosure may be happening. However, don't you fear that internet uh, uh, overseeing would be a detrimental to the disclosure process? Oh, definitely. I think uh, any effort to restrict the internet would actually be very detrimental to the disclosure process. But I really don't see that succeeding. I mean, it's very hard to take something away from people. It's, it's easier to deny people something, but it's much, much harder to take something away from people. And I think what we have, especially in the United States, is a whole tradition of freedom of speech protected by the Constitution. People are used to an internet which is free. And I think that they are very suspicious of any attempt by any service to restrict internet coverage or bring about a, a form of, of um, uh, censorship on the internet by stealth. Do you share any of the fear or reservations concerning world governments are losing nationalistic ideals? I think the world government, uh, the New World Order idea, was a very great threat to the continuation of the United States as a powerful constitutional nation. I think that the New World Order agenda was really to weaken and undermine the United States, and in particular the military forces. One of the things that I guess a lot of people don't appreciate in this field is that, uh, by and large, the U.S. military are very much pro-disclosure. A lot of the, the main whistleblowers come from, come from the military. They have been encouraged to come forward by uh, very senior people behind the scenes in the military. So the U.S. military is pro-disclosure because they understand what the consequences would be if the New World Order agenda uh, were to uh, emerge triumphant. And the, uh, the result would be that the U.S. military which has a very proud tradition going all the way back to the American Revolution, would cease to be a significant international actor and would possibly be even inter, would be um, merged or integrated into a much larger entity. And, and I think that the U.S. military uh, people really take to heart their uh, oath of loyalty to protect and serve the U.S. Constitution. On June of 2006... Al Jazeera published an article discussing a letter you had sent them informing them about the possibility of alien intervention in order to prevent a nuclear attack on Iran by the United States. What can you say about your letter to Al Jazeera and the subsequent flap? Right. Well, that was to clarify exactly what uh, my role and the, uh, and the Exopolitics Institute's role was concerning the prediction that a comet would actually um, land in the Atlantic and, and cause many hundreds of thousands or millions of, of casualties. That, uh, that was not something that we supported, that prediction. But nevertheless, we were very open to the idea that extraterrestrials were very interested in how we would resolve our international conflicts and that uh, a nuclear, using nuclear weapons against Iran was something that would be of great concern to extraterrestrials who might take any number of actions to either prevent, mitigate, 
or, or deal with the aftermath of such a policy. Well, it seems that this has been happening at least with the Royal Air Force in Britain since the 50s. Well, that's right. You're, you're talking about the, the Milton Torres case where the, um, the National Archives of Britain released uh, his, his file describing... Exactly. Exactly. Yes, how he, he was instructed to, to shoot down UFOs. What was Al Jazeera's response to your letter? I think they appreciated that, uh, you know, we uh, as an organization, uh, with that letter I was speaking on behalf of the Exopolitics Institute, that they appreciated that uh, we as an organization uh, were, were taking a much more objective approach of putting out possibilities as opposed to actively promoting a certain agenda. So, in other words, that we were not uh, in agreement with the agenda uh, to actually uh, frighten people into believing that there was going to be a comet impact in the mid-Atlantic that would create tsunamis that would um, cause many millions of, of deaths. What do you feel is the attitude in the Muslim nations which does not seem as open to alien visitation, which is ironic given the old Sumerian text and the often seen chariots of fire and messengers from the heavens in the Quran, as well as the Torah and the Bible. No Arab leader or Muslim cleric has gone as far as the Vatican or other nations from Belgium to Brazil to Denmark to Holland in releasing their UFO files. What do you think about... Well, I, I think uh, when we look at the Islamic world, we have to appreciate that we are looking at countries which have very small middle classes, that you have a very large underclass of poor, illiterate people that uh, really are not privy to some of the, the more kind of um, globalizing effects of technology and kind of international labor. Um, and so that means that uh, those people that are in that underclass do tend to embrace kind of uh, more fundamentalist messages. And so uh, that underclass is often kind of motivated by some, some very kind of, uh, to put it uh, in, in a neutral way as possible, some kind of very uh, emotionally driven um, sermons by, by their preachers, by those that are promoting an Islamic agenda, which doesn't affect which doesn't reflect the, uh, the agenda of the upper class or, or the genuine middle class in the Islamic world, nor does it reflect the, the kind of historical uh, role of the Islamic religion, which has historically been a, a tolerant religion. I mean, if you go back to the early days of Islam, it, w it was in, in the Christian nations that you saw kind of fanatical religious um, movements, and in the Islamic world you had a lot of tolerance. But now we, the situation has, reserved, uh, has reversed because now Europe is rich, we are more tolerant, whereas the Islamic world tends to be poorer and you have a lot of intolerance there. What do you think about the revelations of Zachariah Sitchin? I think he has done a great public service in bringing to the attention of uh, many people with his books that began in the mid-1970s with The Twelfth Planet the possibility... That, and the evidence, really, a lot of evidence that the ancient Sumerians did openly interact with and were advised by extraterrestrial visitors from a 12th planet called Nibiru. And I think his research is sufficiently of a scholarly standard to get a lot of people very interested in, in that possibility. And I think you really 
can't understand international politics until you understand or appreciate the historical influence extraterrestrial visitors have had on different civilizations and how that has impacted on the U.S.'s uh, international agenda, such as uh, getting into Iraq during the, the two Gulf Wars. Do you give any credence to issues such as Planet X or Nibiru? I think that there is a Planet X or a Nibiru. I don't agree, however, with uh, some of those who take a more alarmist position that, you know, as it comes into our atmosphere, or as it comes into the inner part of our solar system, that it's going to cause a pole shift and catastrophic environmental impacts. So I think I think Nibiru is probably more uh, a planetoid as opposed to a planet, uh, which follows a, a kind of a fixed orbit as a planetoid i think it's an artificial uh planetoid so in other words it can move um, at will based on on its occupants desire to be in a certain location so I, i think that they're probably observing progress on our planet and that has influenced their agenda and certainly influenced uh the way in which uh, nibiru will appear um, in our lives or in the skies at some point in the future If this planet or planetoid indeed exists, having an elliptical orbit, that would mean that that's why we can't see it. Well, uh, I think you can, it can only be seen in the infrared um, spectrum. And spectrum, have, right. And there, and there have been uh, some who say that they have um, seen the data. And, and of course, uh, one of the people that was very interested in that was an astronomer, Robert Harrington, who... Uh, was one of the key people to to really promote the idea that there was a tenth planet out there and that we had to use the infrared um, telescopes to identify it. And, and uh, unfortunately, he had a, a very suspicious death um, in, I believe it was, New Zealand at the time. Um, and so I think there is definitely something to uh, Planet X being sufficiently far away that it can't be seen through the naked eye or ordinary telescopes and you need to have special telescopes, infrared telescopes, to be able to see it. What do you think about ancient visitation? I think there are many different historical examples. We mentioned the Sumerian. I think that uh, another culture that has that is rich with uh, references to otherworldly visitors uh, is the Vedic civilization in India. There you find multiple references to uh, visitors from other worlds. It talks about how these visitors interacted with the inhabitants of Vedic civilization at the time, how the visitors were involved in the different conflicts on the uh, Indian subcontinent, how the visitors shared their technologies, what, what the technologies were, and some of the kind of very destructive uh, warfare that, that occurred Uh, with this advanced technology, and uh, I think if you if you go to the Vedas, you will find there much more information that uh, than what is available in, say, the Sumerian records or what is available in um, in in the Americas, because uh, the Americas, like uh, India, like Sumeria, has also its own traditions of ancient vis visitation. But unfortunately, many of those records were destroyed by the Spanish conquistadors and the priests that, that followed the, 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 the Spanish uh, uh, conquest. So it's really in India that we have the, the richest vein of literature dealing with this ancient visitation. I don't know why the story of Galileo comes to mind right about now. Have, have you studied or researched the worldwide legends or visitations? I have 
done a, a little of that. I mean, if, if we're talking about the visitations in indigenous cultures, um, yes, uh, some of that. I mean, the, the Hopis um, and other tribes, uh, Native American Indian tribes, talked about the, the visitors from the stars or the, the, the star brothers, as, as they were termed, uh, that they would come back at a certain time when we were ready to jump from the fourth world into the fifth world. And so that's a, that's a part of... Uh, uh, Native American uh, traditions and, and the Hopis talked about the uh, Blue Kachina which I thought was very interesting uh, it, it was uh, the Blue Kachina uh, was something uh, that many people believed uh, uh, was um, occurred with the Comet Homes that I think that appeared in uh, October November 2007 from memory and that that was this uh, comet that just exploded into a, a huge blue um, Fireball for a certain for for a period of a few weeks, and that many saw it as a blue star, and so and it was as big as the sun for a period of time. And so for the uh, for the uh, Hopi Indians, this was um, exemplification of what the Hopi traditions or prophecies were that uh, before the return of the Star Brothers, you would have the blue kachina that would be the warning that uh, we are about to enter into this transition between the fourth world and the fifth world. And before we take our first break, did I hear you mention that there's, and I've heard this before, that there's an ulterior motive, a different reason as to why we went to war with Iraq, perhaps to get our hands into some ancient technology. Is that something you heard also? Uh, yes, um, th that is something that I think... Uh, the literature supports that, in other words, that there is a lot of literature that has come out, a lot of testimonies that have come from people involved uh, with research into Iraq or what's, what's happened with the war effort there and with our archaeological uh, efforts in Iraq, that there is something valuable in an archaeological sense uh, for the... Um, uh, for the U.S. government in Iraq, and that I believe that this was why the Iraq invasion occurred, that if we go back to the literature of uh, Sitchin's descriptions of the Sumerians, what we have there is evidence of an ancient extraterrestrial visitation that worked closely with the Sumerians where they shared a lot of information. And that information is, is buried in these uh, ancient Sumerian cities in southern Iraq, um, and, some, and a lot of that information is recorded on cuneiform uh, texts that li lie buried, and some of that deals with these advanced travel technologies. And some of these advanced travel technologies are not just rocket propulsion, because that's what uh, Zechariah Sitchin talked about, but also Stargate technology. And I think William Henry was the person who first talked about uh, possible stargates in Iraq, and that was something that I got very interested in. And I think he's correct that uh, in ancient Iraq or Sumeria, you have these stargates that provided uh, some of the elites of the Anunnaki, or, the, or the, the extraterrestrials in ancient Sumeria, the opportunity to travel instantaneously between different space-time localities. And I think that's why the U.S. did go into Iraq. So if the theory proves to be correct, the war in Iraq is just a distraction. As are many wars. I think many wars on the planet are manufactured, that they're created to basically distract, to distract the population from some, from some of the deeper political issues or exopolitical issues that are being playing, played out. 
I think in Iraq, uh, the conflict was a cover for this need to go in there and find as much information about Stargate technology as possible and also to locate any Stargates that may still have remained in ancient in, in Iraq. And I, and I think that we can find many similar uh, situations in other parts of the world where there were conflicts. We have to take a break, and when we come back, we're here with uh, Dr. Michael Sala. He has a new book out, Exposing U.S. Government Policies on Extraterrestrial Life, The Challenge of Exopolitics. This is Mel Fabregas, and you're listening to The Very Test Show. Stay with us. Thank you very much for listening. We're going to talk more with our special guest in our members section. Head on over to our website, verytestshow.com, click on subscribe, and join us in the members area to tune in to the second part of this great show. We'll take a short break, listen to some music, and we'll be right back with more.